This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theater. This seminar, performance. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing. And although we are very well known for the Tony Awards, and I am justly proud of this very important and special award, which was created by the Wing to reward and, uh, the people that have achieved a degree of excellence in the craft of the theatre. However, the Wing is a year-round program. It has many programs that we do, and I'd like to tell you about some of them. Among the many programs is the hospital shows, which is just that. We bring theater to hospitals and nursing homes and aid centers so that those who can't come to the theater have a few minutes, half hour, 45 minutes, whatever it is that their concentration can take, of the magic of theater and a little forgetfulness in their hard times. We also go into schools on Saturday mornings with our Saturday morning for children program. And that's a very special kind of program because on Saturday mornings, youngsters in the elementary school age line up to go to see a live show. It services the community as well because both parents and teachers work in this program with the children and so there is a community effort there and a crossover between both generations. We hope that it will provide the audience for the future, not an audience that will go to the theater just because it's a special occasion or because it was a terrific review, but an audience that has grown up with the need of wanting to see live theater. And out of that program grew our new program, which is Introduction to Broadway. And I'm extremely proud of that program. It has just started. And within three months, there'll be over 5,000 school children, high school and junior high schools. We started the program with the Board of Education, with the cooperation of producers Schubert's and Jude Jansen. These young people have paid for part of a ticket, an affordable price was made, and they have come to a Broadway theater. They've come on matinees and they come on evenings, and it's a marvelous sight to see. And because of the wing, the people in the theater have stayed afterwards, after the lights have gone down, have answered questions from these young people, have told them what it is to work in the theater, and even to the stage manager that there are other roles for them to look at in the theater other careers as well for them to look for. And that's a program that I'm extremely proud of, and I'm hoping that in the fall we will go ahead with it 
and do m triple the 5,000. Now, these seminars on working in the theater, seminars grew out of the school that the wing had for returning veterans after the Second World War. They came back to rehone their trade. And people like Jose Ferrer and Richard Rogers and Harold Prince had opened doors and Kermit Bloomgarden on producing so they could go from one to the other, share knowledge. And young people like Charlton Heston and Tony Randall and Richard uh, Howard Moss and people of that kind that were just emerging also learned their skills there. From that came the seminars. And they were shown seven times a week on CUNY TV, and that is a graduate center at the City University of New York Station. We're very pleased that we are here today. We're very pleased with this panel. And as always, it's filled with such knowledge and such skill that I hesitate to say anything more about the American Theatre Wing except to say I'm indeed proud that we can call upon people like the panelists today. And I'm going to turn the panel over to uh, our two co-chairpersons. Jean Dalrymple, who wears many hats. She is a producer, director, author, and very sturdy member of the board of directors of the American the Theatre Wing. Brendan Gill, who is critic and author, works at the New Yorker, I am told, but is witty, wise in many things as well as the theatre. Mr. Gill and Ms. Dalrymple, will you please take over now? Very well. Thank you. <laughs> to my astonishment, uh, just a few minutes ago, I heard Isabel say that we are here in these improvised circumstances because of circumstances that were beyond her control. I have never known anything to be beyond Isabel's control. It is almost enough to make me believe in, in Emerson's bitter and frightening dictum that things are in the saddle and ride mankind. In any event, my side of this straight and narrow panel begins with Jonathan Price, who is starring in Miss Saigon at the Broadway Theater. He mentioned a few minutes ago that he was going to be leaving on December 7th, and I said December 7th, 1995, 96. No, no, 91. So commit whatever crime may be necessary for you to get to see Miss Saigon before that fatal date. And, and next, to, next to Jonathan is Mercedes Rule, who is, is starring in the Neil Simon Pulitzer Prize winning play, lost in Yonkers. It's very easy to be lost in Yonkers, but she finds herself there vividly at all times. And then a the, wonderful new play has uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, as well as Mr. Rifkin, in it, The Substance of Fire, which is wonderfully, for all of us who believe in theater, uh, doing extremely well. And it's, it's wonderful to have such a play and such actors with us today. Jean, speak up. <laughs> Way down stage left <laughs> is a good friend of all of us, Jane Alexander. Jane has been a star for as many years as I can remember. Not that she's that old, but just because I've been going to the theater so long that I caught her debut, and I've seen everything she did, and she's always wonderful, particularly in the show she's been doing. 
Shadowlands at the Brooks Atkinson Theater. We all love her very much. Um, and then I have next to her the great Topol. Everybody knows him. I don't have to go into a long biography <laughs> of him. <laughs> but here he is, and we're awfully honored to have him with us, Mr. Topol. <laughs> and then we have an adorable girl whom I have loved <laughs> for, for many years. And she is currently giving a tour de force performance in John Guare's Six Degrees of Separation at Lincoln Center Theater. And that is no less than Stockard Channing. <laughs> and right next to me, I'm glad to say, is Don Rivkin, who is now starring in John Robin Bates's critically acclaimed play, the Substance of Fire at the Playwrights Horizon. And before I go any further, what is The Substance of Fire? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to start. Well, you know, The Substance of Fire can mean different things to different people. Uh, uh, there's a symbolic uh, event that happens at the very end of the play, which is a burning of something. And I think it uh, signifies for me the presence and absence of passion in our daily lives and in our um, lives vis-a-vis -vis our family and friends and the world in, in its entirety. Um, fire signifying the past, the present, the future, uh, and, and, and it's, see the play. There's <laughs> also the supreme fire of our time, yeah. which is the Holocaust, yeah. uh, but there were 50 meanings. It's very difficult to get a good title for a play, one that is both memorable in itself and the simplicity of its words and then in the substance of the of the of the, of the But subtext. I think this particular father talks to his children about fire. And this guy has a passion for life and a passion for history and a passion for knowledge and a, a, a thirst for freedom. And I, I think when he talks about fire, that's what he's talking about. But but you know, for all of us it would mean something else, I suspect. Yeah. It's yeah. a, a wonderful play for all the actors in it, but we were talking uh, just between us before we began it today, uh, Sarah and I, about the fact that this play is full of such intensity. Of course, it's about family life, which is always intense under the best of circumstances, but the sense that all the people in this play are at the edge, at the end of their tether, that something has to happen and probably something awful may happen is a thrilling uh, thing to find nowadays. This is what people have always gone to the theater for, and this play delivers that wonderfully. And all of you do that uh, so wonderfully. Is this the most intense play you were ever in, or not? I think that uh, it's, it's, been, it's been the most difficult, and it's, it's been the most gratifying experience, because, uh, because the text is so strong. Um, it sounds like a cliche, and I've been saying this to people, but you really do. You're constantly finding new things, and the stakes are they get higher and higher every night because you become more and more familiar with this familial situation and because we all like one another it helps too but um, it's it's very it it's very sad and we come off stage and we go oh god man. oh god that was really horrible tonight i mean that was i mean in the, in the best possible way but yeah it's 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 fair it's um you can see when Sarah intense. reaches for three or four tissues at the end of the first act, <laughs> we know where she's been. <laughs> 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 
Stockton County has a place, not exactly like that, but it still takes a lot of what she mentioned. And that's true of all the plays you've been in, especially The House of Blue Leaves, which is my favorite of your plays. Oh, thank you. You're always... Well, it's not really my place, John Graham's play. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the plays you've been in. Well, uh, thank you very wrote. much. Uh, but uh, do t would you tell us a little bit about it? About Six Degrees? Yeah. Um, well, I think the tricky thing about um, doing Six Degrees about the play, which is uh, one, one of the reasons why it's so unusual, is that it, the text itself is immensely spare, and uh, you have a few lines to uh, establish a certain reality in time, a certain relationship, and then it, it, it raises practically every issue that uh, we're concerned with these days, all in the space of an hour and a half for anyone who's seen it. And it goes by so quickly and um, was almost choreographed by Jerry Zachs. And, uh, and the thing is, you have to be able, what, what we were saying earlier about, you know, you come up with different things. One of the tricky things about Six Degrees is you want to keep it alive in the moment. So certain times something will come to your mind, and you have to instantly make a decision whether it's appropriate or not, and not, uh, you know, s uh, sort of waggle, you know, or wobble off the line. So there's this constant tension of moving the play forward and still being alive in the moment because of the way, uh, I mean, John's writing is, is um, it's almost real. It's terribly heightened uh, reality. It's a very un almost unnatural kind of speech. But the illusion is that it's very natural. And um, when we first performed it in front of an audience of previews, I was uh, amazed at how instantly an audience went with it. Uh, I, was, I still am stunned by it, because when we were in rehearsal, it seemed immensely almost abstract to me. It was like sort of doing back at a Ionesco or something. And um, it really is a tribute to Jerry that he was able to you know, make this so accessible to an audience. And to be in a play that's so commercially successful, yeah, is so uh, artistically uh, out there on one level, is really a, an immensely oh. interesting experience. Yes, it goes like lightning. Yeah, it does. Oh, yeah. But people seem to go along <clears throat> for the trip. I mean, you know, I don't think we leave a lot of people behind. And we've been running now over a year, like about a year. So you get a lot of people, you get a lot of people in seeing this play that maybe have never seen a play before. You get a lot of tourists coming in, you know. And I think it's great that they sit there and they just they go along with it. It's yeah. another family play, by the way, in the same kind Definitely. of intensity that, and to me it's been astonishing uh, that when the children turn on the parents, the <laughs> audience reacts, oh my God, you're a sitting stab like this. I know, Everybody I know. in the audience I know. Is, it's just out there. through it's that. It's this great wild rush of release of energy, I guess, that exists in <laughs> all, all these families <laughs> in America. <laughs> all that is coming all out all at once. Now, Jane, your play had to do something almost opposite, which is what is thrilling about theater, that this goes like lightning, your play goes like lightning. Your play deliberately had to have a different pace in order for us to become interested in characters who were by no means sympathetic at first. The man plainly not sympathetic, deliberately not sympathetic. So if, if any attempt had been to race through anything there, the audience would have been put at sea, you wouldn't have known how to deal with that. And so here in, 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 your, in your play, what was exciting to see was how we were drawn into what would have seemed the most unlikely thing for us to care about, and we did care. So that's a, that's a, 
completely different feeling that you have to have. And in yeah. this case, in, in both cases, it's both what the director is able to do, but also what the actors are capable of doing in pace themselves, which is the, every play different. And what John Guerra wrote. Oh, yes. <laughs> but it's a, it was, uh, and, but did you feel that with the audience too? Could, could, you, could you sense that increased engagement as it went along? Yeah, but it was, it was important for us as actors not to be so likable in the beginning. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, because by the end it's all so sad and desperate. Oh, you know, like, no. By then you have to win them over and if they started crying in the first act, we'd really <laughs> be at sea. Yeah, that's so. right. So, the, by the way, Shadowlands did close two weeks ago, so nobody can see it. <laughs> We'd like to feel that it's going on forever, though. Well, thank you. <laughs> I saw it twice. It was really wonderful. But, you but were wonderful. A lot of people must have thought that it was very brave even to bring it here because of the unlikelihood of people wanting to see as much <laughs> sadness on stage. There are still enough Philistines in the world saying, oh, there's so much sorrow in the world, I don't want to go to see it on the stage. But, but you know what I, uh, what I loved about it, and I, uh, when I went to see it in London to see if I wanted to do it here, I, I, I was worried when I read the play that it could be maudlin and sentimental and all this, but when I saw Nigel, the way he was performing it, and Jane LaPater did it in London when I first saw it, um, Nigel brought such interesting characteristics and behavior to the piece that I thought, ah, that's what we have to develop. These are going to be real people and we'll just put them out there and the audience either goes with them or they won't. But what I loved about the play was it tackles things that all of us have experienced personally, pain, love, and suffering. I mean, uh, what more can yeah. death, yeah. disease, and there, there isn't a person I would, I would uh, probably say that in the audience that in some way didn't have some similar experience somewhere along the line. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about really today wonderfully is that there is plenty of room left uh, for us in the theater as there is in the novel or anything else for the natural sorrows of life. Don't you think the beginning of it was that everybody had read about it in the paper? I don't think everybody reads the papers. Uh, <laughs> I do. They look at I pictures do. nowadays. Very little reading is actually done. You'd be surprised. Well, I, I had never read his bi the biography, which I ought to have read, but I never had. So I, I never read any C.S. Lewis, period. Yeah. And I still haven't read much. Of it. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not true. I did do some, but I wasn't. I'm, I wasn't a fan of his, and I'm still not much of a fan. I don't think it's really about C.S. Lewis mm -hmm. per se. There's some recognition value for people who know about Lewis and Joy Davidman. But it's really a play about, it's a love story. It's about a man who was incapable of love finding yeah. and somebody yes. who makes him. It's almost a frozen personality That's slowly right. thawing out. Oh, yes. God, what a thing to do. It's tremendous to have that. But, but Brandon, talking about, about a man incapable of love, can we come down this side? <laughs> <laughs> No offense. <laughs> I can't imagine that. Well, yes. yes. <laughs> How is that as a problem for you as an actor? Being incapable of love. <laughs> Being of a certain. There's a role in Saigon. Well, he, he has a, a great love. Unfortunately, his love is, uh, is the dream of America. That's what he's uh, trying to achieve mm -hmm. in Saigon. But that again is a. It's a like Shadowlands is about, uh, it's, it's really a love story. It's about the power of, what I got from Shadowlands anyway, was the, the joy and the power of 
love and uh, aspects of Miss Saigon um, are, are just that. It's, it's someone's um, emotional, you know, life. Um, whether it be for another human being, it's for a country, it's for an ideal. It's from that. It's just sort of across the board. You then find that almost every topic we have is an expression of love in a mutilated form. So that the miser, for example, would be expressing love, but it would be through the love of money. Uh, so pretty soon uh, it all cancels out on that level. Then you have to find something else uh, in, in the role. That's why I think the harshest comedies are about those people whose love consists of an objectified thing out mm. there rather than a fellow human being. Yeah. But, but to risk a fellow human being is pretty terrifying. Yeah. I think well, humor and, uh, I'm sorry. that you've made such a fabulous character out of that. And I wonder if a lot of it was in the script or did you make it up? Um, Say you well, made it up, John. <laughs> well, a lot of it I did. My <laughs> and I hope the checks in the post. Be, um, <laughs> it's uh, it's it, it's everything is that when I first got the the script, it was it was in French, and uh, and I I couldn't make head and tail of it, and I I didn't really know which part I was being offered, and uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really young enough for the GI and maybe I don't know but this uh, this part doesn't look very good on page the engineer so it's it's what I brought to it mm -hmm. it expanded it but um, <clears throat> but that, that's the, the, the rehearsal process and you uh, creating you add a few lines here and there and the making of a thing, which is all which takes place, nobody really, nobody in the audience is supposed to know how a thing is actually made in mm. that way, because the contributions ought not to be able to be identifiable after no. they have been done. No, but it, it's 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 always surprising that, that to other people how much uh, contribution we as actors make in the rehearsal process to to uh, to a play, mm -hmm. um, especially a new piece of work, and especially something which has the scope of Miss Saigon, where you, it's. It's up for grabs. Nobody knows what it's supposed to be, so you can create and build. And uh, it, it, a lot of it's down to the actors. Mm -hmm. Were you given directions from the beginning of rehearsals, and or did you, once having given the barest of directions, did you then build on that and create what we now see? Well, a, a lot of what we did in in London was uh, was improvised initially. Mm -hmm. um, we would and um, you would improvise scenes and. Um, and, and uh, I think Heitner's, Nick Heitner's job, um, which I find a, a lot of uh, directors work, is to uh, is to guide and shape rather than to mm -hmm. to lead. Um, they they I use them as a sounding board, really. Mm -hmm. um, and what Nick Heitner did in Miss Saigon, which his his greatest strength is the uh, assembly of large numbers of people on the stage. But I think the that the actors work that we do for ourselves. Really. Did, did, did I read uh, that uh, Mr. Bates, as playwright, uh, intended you to be playing that part? I think you did read that. Because that is an old-fashioned thing that people used to do, as Rostand <coughs> would have written Cyrano yeah. for Coquelin. Uh, that hasn't happened as much in recent years, and the, even Old Coward was always writing parts for his friends to play. Uh, but it does make a difference when you are the person who is known to be able to do a certain thing that gives the playwright an opportunity I don't know, to push. I, I don't know that I was known to do that. I just that when Robbie wrote the play, he wrote it with me in mind because he'd seen me work 
and he had an idea for this character and sort of had my rhythms and who knows? I mean, I don't know. I mean, he just thought about me when he was writing it mm -hmm. and intended for me to play it. What's so peculiar about that is that the character is so, so unlike you. You know, I mean, it's amazing it, mm -hmm. that someone would write with, with a person in mind and write something so polar opposite of a personality. You know, well, I, I mean, think, but I think, you know, we all have dark sides to us, and I think Robbie, in some sense, knew that I had this dark <laughs> side. <laughs> well, I'm I not suggesting that you don't have a dark side. <laughs> but also, it can be very difficult when, uh, about 15, 16 years ago, I did a play called Comedians that right. Trevor Griffiths ostensibly wrote for me to play. And it was one of the most difficult roles I've ever had to get a handle on. Because he, I didn't have this image of myself, and I didn't. Uh, it was supposedly so close to me, I couldn't see it. <laughs> it was a long time. It was ages before yeah. I could uh, could start to work. Yeah. It. Whereas it's if it's something completely away from you, you can get hold of it a lot quicker. I mean, the engineer is uh, was something I could grab onto very quickly and easily. Now, Mercedes, we haven't asked you that question about <coughs> to what extent you again are a character in a play who not being, is the opposite of Frozen. You are dying to be loved, bursting with, mm. with, with, with uh, an un, continuously unrequited love. Uh, but is there a difference between the roles you first saw it and, and how it developed as, as the play went along through rehearsal? What happened in that respect in your case? Uh, when I first read it, I couldn't see what it was. It seemed m miles away from me. It seemed beyond reach, and I kept thinking, I, I had the play for about a month and a half before I had to uh, meet with Neil Simon and, and read for him. And I, uh, when I first read it, I thought, so what do I do? Adapt a, a, a baby talk? Do I, how do I do this? So I put it away for a long time, and then suddenly the day came up to meet with him. And the night before, I thought, well, <laughs> you better figure out something. <laughs> um, I'd never met him before. I was terrified. And so I, I stayed up for a good part of that night. And uh, one, one little thing that tipped it off, I was thinking, how do you play? And I thought she, she came in around 13 years old. She checked in around 13 in terms of emotional and mental development, or at least intellectual development. I think her mental uh, abilities probably are the same as anybody's, but certain learning disabilities and uh, characteristics of her life so far has, have kept her in this childlike condition. But I thought 13, that's where she is. And I thought, what, what's a good metaphor for an adult with a 13-year-old brain? And I came with, with Tom Hanks who's played my son in, in, uh, in uh, Big. And I thought, that's it. She, she actually sounds, can, can sound quite adult, can move along, can move thoughts along. And it sort of opened something for me. And when I went to read it for Neil the next day, I had luckily, miraculously, taken that ball and run with it and discovered somebody who essentially stayed the same mm -hmm. throughout the rehearsal period. But the character that I thought was way out there was really six inches away, I just had to move my foot over a little and step into her. Mm -hmm. So it was a revelation. That's intensely expressive uh, you, as, you make, as you make the role. But now, was Simon startled by what you have been able to do like that? Or what was his response? Well, I, I, I think he was a little surprised um, at, at, at the intensity of what he had written. Because yeah. it's been my experience that you can't actually bring an intensity 
if it, the writing is there, the writing supported it, all the way up to the end of the emotional trajectory. And if you try to go beyond what a writer has written, you s generally look like you're overacting. So the writing was there to support it all. But I think he was maybe a little bit surprised mm -hmm. at what he had written and how far it could go, mm -hmm. in terms of grief. Yeah. Because that play is, is uh, everybody in that play is, so, is mutilated, and then you're writing a play about entirely mutilated people, and it's funny. You know, it's an amazing thing. This is well, what a playwright comedy, can comedy, do. Comedy, I oh, think, I uh, has a dark right? root. Yeah. But, but you were able to be open and expressive inside your, the absence of growth of adulthood. Uh, you were still giving all that out and having it rebuffed. So it's a very, it becomes a very touching role. And, and, uh, well, it stands apart because the checks of adulthood, the, mm -hmm. the personal checks and ed editing that come with adulthood, uh, don't affect Bella. So much easier to be little boys. <laughs> and you know, the audience is so happy when she does that. You know, you feel it. They're saying, "Oh, thank God!" You know, and uh, and she does save the situation. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also a very archetypal transaction. It's a child breaking away from a parent and becoming self-responsible, becoming mm -hmm. independent. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a very small, a very universal story, but it's the story that all folk tales and all fairy tales allude to. It's, it's one of the great stories. If there are seven great stories in the universe, as some people allude to, that's got to be one of them. Mm -hmm. So it, yes. universally, people r respond to this, this great mm -hmm. ancient folk tale, this story. should really lead you to the family to Topol at this point. Because mm -hmm. if you're talking about the family and talking about this, Surely no one epitomizes what he is doing more than Topol in Fiddler on the Roof. It's about family again. I would be very disappointed if you hadn't done exactly what you did. I would You're be very kidding. happy. Topol, what about you and family? In that part? Oh, well, I certainly cannot claim that uh, uh, I created the part. Uh, I had the privilege uh, and the advantage of watching uh, a genius creating that part, Zero Mostel. Um, I didn't think it was a good part for me because I actually uh, turned uh, down the part when uh, it was offered to me. I went to see it and I said, that's not a part for me, it'll never work in Israel. And <laughs> I was mistaken. It ran for three for three years. Um, I then had the opportunity to see my teacher Mulke Rodensky playing the part, and he really made me love the part. And uh, he certainly made me realize that a very important rule in the theater that if they laugh too much in the first act, they won't cry in the second. <laughs> And uh, I'm trying to keep to uh, that rule. Um, but as I said, uh, uh, this part was created by a genius who made a lot of room on stage for all the Tevias who came after him. And, uh, and uh, I'm very grateful to my teacher who steered me in the right direction which is suitable I hope for me. Did you, did you always have uh, one name 
No, I still have two names. Well, when, when, when did you decide to have one name? My name is Chaim Topol, and uh, I never dropped my first name. I call myself Chaim Topol. When I uh, went to uh, London, uh, where I opened it, when I, where I opened Fiddler in 1967, uh, it was very difficult for uh, English people to pronounce C-H-A-I-M. I mean, I was called Chime and Chime, and then, uh, or Chame, and then the producers decided that uh, Topol is easy. Uh, still, I have to say that even with Topol, I have problems. I mean, when I came here, it was Tapal and Topol, and uh, uh, I hope that by now they know how to pronounce yeah. it. <laughs> I didn't know whether there was a European tradition of one name. I was trying to think of other cases like that. Usually it happens by accident that if a person becomes famous enough, he may only have a first name, like Tallulah, or where, where Bankhead became uh, unnecessary. As a last name. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's very strange. Uh, I, mean, we're not, I wish we talked about theater, but we'll talk about my name for a second. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, uh, I cannot explain it, but my father, who is not a famous actor, he was a plasterer, I mean, he is uh, uh, a member of a kibbutz now, and he was also, although his name is a very simple name, his first name is Jacob, was always called Topol. So uh, were my sisters, I mean, always called Topol before they married, although uh, th their names are very, uh, their first names are very simple. I cannot explain why people prefer to say Topol rather than Jacob or Shosh or Chaim. I cannot explain it. Mm -hmm. It's related in my mind or in my unconscious to Topaz as in, in, mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the play and character and all that. Uh, but, but that wouldn't make sense either because that's too little known. Yeah. No, there's a, there must be some intrinsic magic there that you've happened upon. Well, and it looks wonderful in print because mm -hmm. of the, the, the repetition of the cabals and consonants. It's just nice. Top off, a fortunate man. Right. Hmm? Fascinating name, you know. Yeah. And it's one that can't be forgotten. And I think he's quite right to use it. <coughs> and Heim is a difficult word to say in the proper. <laughs> say it. Say it the way it's supposed to be Heim. Heim, like Lechaim, to life. <laughs> Jonathan, can you say hi yeah. in English? Do you have any? Do you have a problem I'm Welsh, with yeah. your Welsh? Yeah. Oh well. Yeah, yeah. So Welsh sure and Dutch don't it. have problems with it. Close it. As we say, yeah, Yachida. So. Yeah. And I only ever use Mercedes. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to say Lachaim for years, and it never sounds right. It's, well, it's masculine. Say Luchaim. There you go. <laughs> we had a famous character in America who played the Count of Monte Cristo for many, many years, Eugene O'Neill's father, James O'Neill, and he pretended that it was the burden and cross of his life to be, that he had to carry it all those years, decade after decade, but in point of fact, there was no law saying that he had to play it uh, for that many years. But you have, have you approached that point where you begin to think, uh, is my life to be devoted? Uh, no, I'm very okay. grateful. I'm very grateful to uh, uh, the fact that I'm being asked. Uh, I've been asked since 1967 to play the part. I, uh, uh, I did it for a year in, on the London stage at the Her Majesty's. Uh, and uh, then I did the film. Uh, in 1970, 
And since, I mean, producers asked me to do it again and again, and I refused to do it. In 1983, when a producer uh, agreed to do it for a limited season uh, of three months, I said, okay, I'll try and do it. Um, and I enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, the, the season was extended, and uh, we ran for six months at the Apollo Victoria. Um, and I really enjoyed every uh, night, uh, every performance. I found that uh, as an actor, when I did it in 1967, I was uh, 30 years old, 31 years old. And um, I found that uh, I had to imagine, as actors do, what it would be being in a situation of uh, giving your daughter away or whatever the situation that we have to play. Uh, and then in 1983, uh, I found that I have experienced quite a lot of the situations that I'm going through in the play. Um, and more so now. Uh, this is the third time that I'm playing it. And uh, I really find it uh, very rewarding, A, not to put so much energy in playing the age, because in 1967, I thought that a man of 55 is really <laughs> very old. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I... Uh, developed a, uh, a technique how to close muscles and how uh, to uh, make myself look old and how to sound old and all that, uh, which uh, I certainly don't need to do now. <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, but also the experiences. At, at 1967, when I sang uh, to Golda, Do You Love Me, uh, I thought that 25 years being married is an eternity. <coughs> Uh, now I've been married for uh, I've been married for 35 years, so Golda and Tevye look to me like two babies, you know, <laughs> youngsters. I actually have to reverse the acting now and think a little younger than than I am. So uh, it's it's very it's very and and I know the material very well. It's not the first play that I'm uh, doing again. Uh, I did Othello twice, and I found it very rewarding to play the second time. Um, I did Caucasian Chalk Circle twice, and I found, found it very rewarding, because, uh, and not that I'm, I was criticizing my first interpretation, but uh, I was kind of building on top of the first interpretation, kind of developing it uh, as a more matured and experienced uh, person mm -hmm. in life and on stage. What about going back and playing Othello again? Uh, actually, it's in the cards, and I'm, I'll be, probably do it the the end of this year. You have a, you have a really noble voice, which would be you. just perfect for Othello, because he needs that noble voice. Otherwise, he's a, such a terrible character. He's so vain, so conceited. So, but but the voice somehow and the music. I hope to do it at the Habima Theater by the end of this year. Oh, that would be that would be great. But will you be eventually having played Teva so long in the Guinness Book of Records or not? I don't know how what anybody has played. Has played no, I don't think so. I think that uh, uh, our uh, bless his memory, Zero Mostel, did it uh, much longer, mm -hmm. and I think that 
uh, bless his memory, Herschel Bernardi, who did it uh, twice as many mm -hmm. as I did. Yeah. Jessica, what do you draw upon in your youthful age, in your young age? Is it difficult to play an actress? Um, no, it's what's what's peculiar about playing this part is uh, first of all, her name is Sarah, which is well, I wouldn't think uh, before doing it that it would be strange, but that's what's most peculiar about playing this part is it's such a different person than me. Um, it's not. I, I don't. Th I don't think of her as an actress. I think of her as um, this this person in this aggravated situation who who just desperately wants things to be okay and and she sort of leaves what she does at the door for a, a good reason primarily because her father so um, well has so little respect for what she does that she you know it becomes so little of who she is um, so I don't I don't think of think of her as an actress I think of her as this very young person who desperately wants her father to love her. Mm -hmm. Now, in the case that if you were playing Shakespeare, you couldn't ask Shakespeare to change the name of the character, but you no. could have asked Mr. Bates <laughs> to do so. Yes, and in fact, her name had been something else. When I first saw the play at Naked Angels, uh, um, a theater company where the show started at its inception, was a one act, and I believe her, her name was Alana? Her name well, was... Uh, Ray actually, there were two... Yeah, there were two... Uh, there was a workshop at Naked Angels where it started, and then there was a workshop at the Long Wharf. Right. The Long Wharf was Alana, and at Naked Angels it was. Do you remember Iva? Meg. Oh, Megan. which is very peculiar. It's Megan. But yeah. I, I just, I, I, you know, I felt like, like they've asked me to do this play, I'm going to do it, whatever the name is. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't care. I'll, I'll learn to work with it. And it didn't. I didn't think it would bother me, but it doesn't even sound like Sarah. It sounds like somebody else's name because she's so. She's not Sarah Jessica, she's Sarah Geldhart. It can work. I was just sent a, a, a cast list of a movie of the week starring Victoria Principal, where the, uh, a pimp, they named the pimp Jonathan Price. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I guess I'll embrace my name. Yeah. Well, you're a three-name person. That's yes. Right. That's also, I think, fairly rare, isn't it now? Mostly, the mostly women novelists in the old days all had three names, but I don't know whether well actresses did too. I don't know. Uh, it became a thing to do. You go from one name to three. <laughs> Could we draw upon you to ask about what you draw upon for this? Because it's such a sustaining role that you have there. It's a difficult role. Um, I don't really. It's funny. I don't really know. I, um, I think one of the factors of working in the theater that we haven't mentioned, is, uh, which Jonathan actually uh, touched on, was the whole rehearsal process. Because when I first read um, the piece, uh, I, I don't think my impression of Weeza, also a strange name, Weeza, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, I've never known anyone called Weeza. Um, you know, if you read a play, and literally something like that will bounce out at your face, and you find yourself saying, what is his name? And you say, no, no, I've got to read this play, I can't. And you, you know, because you, you don't know what it's going to look like, who the other actors are going to be, whatever. And um, when I first read Six Degrees, I really didn't have any uh, expectation of the um, resonance that would come off the piece. I, I didn't know who this person was. I was, a, I was sort of thrown into the situation. The company was sort of waiting for me, and um, I kind of went along for 
for the ride. I, I must confess, I never dreamed it would grow the way it did. But I think, frankly, that kind of surrender is uh, a really uh, great advantage to have in the rehearsal process because what happened was I just let it happen to me. I was totally an inductive uh, uh, procedure. I, I didn't sort of go home and um, think up uh, things about Weeza. As a matter of fact, one of the characteristics of the play is you have no idea how old these people are, except for there's certain bits of information about them, but it's an unusual piece that way. And really, people get their information from the moment-to-moment -moment interaction of the characters. As I mentioned earlier, even though it's a really tightly choreographed thing, with Courtney Vance and John Cunningham, we, we work out this, this sort of language of how we, of intonation, of how you talk to someone, a lot of indirect action and whatever. So frankly, the character of Weeza, for example, sort of emerged from what she does, because I believe that acting is very much about interacting and listening, and, um, and the audience makes up sometimes, and please, I guess, especially who the character is. And, um, you know, so I can't say that, I mean, I can tell you what Weezer may be thinking every moment, but I don't have, I haven't come to make a lot of conclusions about her because I think the nature of the piece requires that you don't. Uh, and I'm very fortunate to have these, especially these two particular actors that I work with so closely, uh, you know, to create this reality with. Because in reality, we don't, you know, define ourselves. Maybe in the middle of the night, we can't sleep. We sort of define ourselves lying in bed, you know. <laughs> but uh, basically, that doesn't operate on the stage, I, you know, by creating that life. Especially, it's like there's no set, really. There's no, you know, we only Jane, have Jane, uh, do you have any ideas about what she's talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I'll say yes, Jane. Please, Please. say yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought you went way over on left stage. <laughs> but I think what uh, Stockard was saying is also very important for play. Well, all right, I thought. No, no, I wanted to. Uh, let me, let me hear, please, Jean, the rest of what Stockard wants to say. <laughs> no, no, that's really, you know, when talking about the characters, we're talking about, you know, playing someone. I mean, as I said, it grew up very inductively, and a lot of things are ha probably happening that I'm not aware of that an audience would name or you guys would name if you've seen, you know, that I may not be aware of. Because I, I think it's sometimes very important not to draw too many conclusions about a character because then you start yeah. commenting exactly. on the essence yes. of that character, yeah. especially uh, in the long that's run. That's what I meant. Mercedes was saying the same thing, too. I think it, I, I've, I found what Mercedes said about at first you think that the character is way out there and then you find it six inches right. next to you. Yeah. But that's part of the process, isn't it? And it's mm -hmm. a strange process. And I, I work so slowly that in Shadowlands, even though I went into it in July in London, and then we went back into rehearsal in New York in October, I didn't hit my stride until the end of January. I mean, I don't know if that's true for a lot of other people, but it took me that long to find the character right mm -hmm. next to me or in me. Or yeah, I thought so. And I try not to make comments on it. You had, as you say, I, I, I also responded to what Stockard said about lying awake at night and sort of defining the character. Yeah, and then you yeah. wake up in the morning and you say, what was that all about? And you exactly. chuck it. Right. Yeah, but, it's very important to know what not to use. Um, one thing that's unusual about Six Degrees, which might be pretty about, I want to say about the rehearsal process, is that um, the way the show looks, what Paul Gallo's lights and Tony Walton's set and all the rest of it, and even when you might be in costumes, it's so much. It's like a living piece of sculpture. The visual aspect mm -hmm. of it is so extraordinary. There's so many lighting cues and shifts around. And what we did, which is very unusual, is that, you know, we have the thing of 10 out of 12 days, where and usually it's right before you go into preview. Everybody's, like, working 10 out of 12 hours and crazy. We went into 10 out of 12 two weeks before previews, and we were in the theater having run-throughs with lights for two weeks before an audience ever came in. Mm -hmm. 
So we were like a band. We were like, you know, we worked, we had the, now we had the cues down absolutely like that, so you knew where you were standing and all that, and you had to learn the lines and get into it. And I worked slowly as well, and I found this almost depressive at first. But then I had to just learn the lines by rote, if you will, so you could be there, because we rarely leaves the stage for the other actors and have the rhythms going. And the interaction came last, the little bits of character and stuff. And I didn't know you could do that, because I've always worked the other way. And it was amazing to find out you could totally reverse your process of working. You couldn't stop and say, no, I don't know what I'm feeling here. No, you couldn't do that, because you had to get on with it. But the life still grew. And it, sometimes uh, the life, you know, you pro solve a problem of a certain moment way down the line. It could be two months after you open. It, it could, you know, and you've got to have patience to hope that it will that it will come and know that you're still okay. And that's a very weird thing about theater uh, that can happen. You know that you can't. There's a certain point you say I've got it, but it could happen anywhere along the line. It could happen the first day of rehearsal. It could happen a year into a run. But that's and that can be frustrating. But it's interesting. It's very much know? like the experience of uh, pick up of uh, of doing a musical. Yeah. Which, yeah. which I'd never done before, and uh, I. In rehearsals, always been used to creating my own space and my own time, and uh, <clears throat> and even taking that into performance. That in a, a longish run, you could switch things round about by changing the timing of things. But I find that rehearsing a musical it was really really difficult because I was having to think and uh, and move and act and do mm -hmm. everything in, within somebody else's uh, time yeah, frame. Yeah, absolutely, exactly. But the, instead of it being inhibiting, I actually. Uh, found it very uh, freeing yeah, and releasing. Yeah, exactly. so I could actually get on with thinking for myself while mm -hmm. somebody else was. Creating and then, did the you time. find that the the thoughts came afterwards? I yeah. mean, once yeah. you got into the rhythm of the piece, this stuff would arrive. You didn't stay at that point of just technical, you know, rhythms. Other stuff will come in. Mm. And I I agree. I, I found the same thing. I was totally surprised that you could do it that way. Because when I'd done Shakespeare in the past, I've always resisted. Uh, using the iambic pentameter, I've always tried. Uh, I thought I thought the thoughts were more important than the rhythms, and uh, would always cut across it. And if it, if it happened on the beat, it very often was accidentally. It wasn't nothing to do with my intention. <laughs> and uh, this is just a roundabout way of saying it. Maybe when I go back to doing Shakespeare now, <laughs> maybe I'll use that because it is uh, it's a very uh, supportive thing to have. Well, also, yeah, when you, when you break the stuff down too much, you lose off. the rhythm of the whole. You know, sometimes the meaning arises from the from a whole. For example, there's that awful thing, and you have the first run, run through in rehearsal, and you have these marvelous scenes, and they're just divine. You think you're just so great, and the other acts are great. <laughs> and then you go through this first run through, and it's all this sort of mess of, <laughs> of you know, self-indulgent pile that doesn't, doesn't sort of hold <laughs> together, you know. And uh, there's something to be said for having to look at the whole and getting something up to speed. It's almost like sort of physics, you know. Something up to speed has a certain life of its own. And I'm at, so you're probably talking about the, the iambic pentameter mm. of the speeches there, too. I mean, to get them both together at the same time, it's, it's truly great. Yeah. But sometimes I don't, you know, you've got to do both. It can work against you, Terry, because in London, I uh, completely lost my lines during the middle of a song. And uh, I wanted to stop. <laughs> and I so, and just sort of fluffed my way through it. And I looked down at the conductor, and he was going. <laughs> 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 and they'd gone. <laughs> and, uh, I just, I just came in about you know 
few <laughs> lines later. <laughs> but they didn't it's know it. <laughs> I discovered this problem in doing Moliere, Richard Wilbur translation of Tartuffe, where you're talking in rhyming couplets, and if you go up in that, how do you improvise in no. rhyming couplets? <laughs> and I think, I think too, that act, actors, like other artists, view the first, maybe the first half or the first few years, the apprenticeship of their work and their art, they, they view form as confining a prison, something that has to be broken. And then you reach that point where you realize that form, like a sonnet for a writer, form is liberating. Form is to be used for liberation, not to be viewed as a prison. So that the, the, the pace, the galloping pace of those rhyming couplets, when you hit the rhyming, the rhyming word at the end of each, of, of each sentence actually makes the humor burst out of the thought. It doesn't, it's not the prison you thought it was, mm -hmm. but boy, does it take a while to get <laughs> to that point. Yeah. <laughs> the hardest thing in the world to do that. Yeah. A wonderful explanation of that. Yeah. Can anybody else follow up on that? Because I think it's, it's, it's a marvelous explanation, the rhythm. Well, well I like very much that uh, the discipline that the music uh -huh. or the rhymes uh, require. I mean, and you, within that discipline, have to develop whatever you want to develop, whether it's thoughts, or feelings, or whatever it is. But it gives you kind of a canvas. It says, this is the size, paint here, what you have to paint. And I find it uh, very challenging, and therefore very rewarding, when you, uh, within the, the, the canvas, succeed to, to deliver what you want to deliver. Uh, I've, uh, because of my experience of the fourth production now uh, of uh, Fiddler, I find other uh, very interesting uh, things that colleagues uh, that have been changed, whether it's your daughter now, you play to, uh, to I mean, you have another family. This is my fourth family now. Uh, and each one of them brings to the, to the stage different qualities, different chemistry, different rhythms, different uh, height, physically. I mean, suddenly, I mean, I used to turn when my daughter would say so-and-so. I used to turn and look here to her eyes, and suddenly they are here <laughs> you know, or there. And, uh, and, uh, and of course, the rhythm of her speech and, uh, and the feelings that she uh, um, delivers and conveys. Uh, and I find those adjustments very interesting. I mean, they really keep you on your toes because uh, it, you have kind of to throw away all that you did before and, and actually rebuild the, the, the part and the role. And it's amazing how uh, weights in the play change because of your colleagues. Because, I mean, if, uh, if uh, you had... Uh, a Perchik, let's say, that really uh, Perchik is the revolutionary guy who comes in and wants to change the world, uh, to better the world, and he has fire in him that really uh, uh, influences you. You go along with him and you say, yes, yes, I mean, this is the... And you actually, I mean, I find that as Tevye now, I developed uh, kind of a, an envy, a jealousy, at uh, this guy now because he gives me that fire and I say yes I wish I were his age and I would join him and I would join the revolution as a Tevye where in other Tevyes I didn't envy them so much <laughs> <laughs> so uh, really I mean you can get a lot from your colleagues 
uh, and this is what you were talking yeah. about, about uh, interacting, and there's no doubt that interacting is very, very important. Uh, when, I, when I was thinking it. when you were talking, I watched one of these um, seminars a few weeks ago, and it was the one with Tyne and... Um, Tyne Daly. Yeah, and they we're talking about listening, actors listening, and how much energy that takes. And I think Irene Worth was, was maybe talking about listening. The other night in our play, there's this scene at the end of the first act when one of the sons has this incredibly long monologue that's very disturbing to all of us. We're four of us on stage, a father and the three children, but it's very disturbing to all of us. And, and Patrick Breen, who's this incredibly brilliant actor, talks with great fire and great passion about his inner world and his past. And we all listen, and we're all listening so intently that, we, that I thought I couldn't ever listen any more than I'm listening. <laughs> and last week, during, well, there's a moment when we're both off stage together, he came up to me, and we have our little rituals. I go to one bathroom, he goes to his bathroom, we have water, and we never, we never talk. We never talk. We've been doing this for two months. And he said, Ronnie, I'm dizzy. I got very dizzy on stage, and please look out for me during this monologue because I'm nervous. And all I could think about when my beloved son is talking to me about how I affected him in his life was, Patrick, what's going on? Are you going to faint? Are you going to faint? <laughs> and I listened with such ferocity and such intensity that I thought, how did I ever think that I was listening before? <laughs> it was incredible. And of course, he got through it. And, but I thought, ah, do I have to learn? Do I have? There's so much to learn. It was incredible. Are you continuing learning? Are you acting? Are you are you taking oh, lessons hope. now? Oh, I don't take lessons now, but I hope I'm learning. Well, I'm but sure. But I'll take you lessons are. if you think there's a good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Which leads me, how uh, I, 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 Brenda, I usually ask Brenda to do this, but you're a miss today, of where you come from in order to have this discipline and to know what it is to react. What what's your background? Where did you start in the theater? Did you study at that university? I'll start with you, Jane. Mm. Not really, no. I'm, I did, but I, I didn't. I had to repudiate most of whatever I learned from teachers. Mm -hmm. I didn't think the teaching was that good. And I didn't have a lot of teachers, and, and then I got into working situations. But I was fortunate that I went to um, theaters outside the city, and I was working 40 weeks a year, year in and year out, for quite a long time early on in my career. And I learned, a, I learned everything from the audience and the great directors I was working with. Should we go along, Topo? Hi. Yeah, well, uh, hi. <laughs> I, well, I was very fortunate to have had very good teachers. Uh, um, in fact, uh, what we did when we, we started as a satirical theater, and then we realized uh, that uh, unfortunately we were successful overnight, and it's going to spoil us. And uh, uh, we were sort of uh, full of energy, but no professionalism whatsoever. But we realized it, and we hired teachers from the Habima and, uh, uh, and Stanislavski's disciples. And uh, we worked with them. We had a very good voice teacher, a Bulgarian voice teacher. Uh, she was wonderful. And then my most important teacher is really Cicely Berry. I'm sure that uh, Jonathan knows very well. Uh, and she's been my teacher for the last 25 years. I'm going to stop you right now. And I find always I'm stopping you part of these seminars because we're going to take a break. 
and um, so that you can stretch and you can move about very smartly move about here very carefully and we'll come back then for questions from the audience and I hope that you've been listening and you have many questions because I know I have too so don't go far away from here We're back at the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. And this seminar is on the performance. And what a splendid group of people we have for the panel. And I had to interrupt them just as we were talking about what it really is to work in the theatre, where you get the experience, how much the audience gives you, and what does the person that you're working against give you. I want to ask uh, uh, Stalker Channing about playing with different actors. You were so perfectly marvelous with Jim Dale. Did that mean something to you? Did that help you? When I did Joe Egg. Yes. Yeah. Joe um, Egg, you were absolutely superb. Thank you. And so was he, of course. But it was a. No, it's funny because I originally did that part, uh, uh, Joe Egg, with uh, Richard Dreyfus. Yes. And uh, we did it at Williamstown and at Long Wharf. And then four years later to do it with another actor. Um, as Topo was saying, I think that you just, um, with a certain passage of time, there's almost a gestation process that happens about the material, that when you return to it, you have, you build on the previous performance. So that's one level. And then when you're dealing, especially, this is really a love story between two people, it's a marriage, even though uh, it's about this, this damaged child that's in the middle of it all. Um, I remember very, very clearly, um, when, uh, I mean, Arvin Brown, his director, and I have been trying to get this together for like four years. And there have been various people that have been dis discussed with and everything. And Richard was wonderful in the role. And I always felt it would be very difficult to work with anybody else. But that, you know, that happens. And I remember very clearly sitting down in Jim's house, reading through the material for the first time. We read it aloud. And it was so exciting because um, it was just like, life, you think that you're never ever going to be in love again. And then you meet someone and you fall in love with a whole other kind of person. I mean, it's. Uh, and, you know, and the relationship was totally fresh because you embraced what was new. And uh, even in Six Degrees, uh, we've had, you know, a lot of people uh, go on vacation or they take leaves and whatever. And I, I've had uh, three people playing my daughter in the play. And, and, I, I, and it's a very, you know, you have to, very brief little interludes, but you have to make clear relationships. And I said, oh, it's like I have three daughters. Yeah. And now I'm talking to this daughter. And, you know, and last week I was talking to that daughter. And I think if you don't project on the other person the demands that were fulfilled, you know, uh, by the, the actor or actress before, if you're able to start as fresh as you can within the context of the reality of the piece, and it's, sometimes it's more difficult than other times, but that is, you know, that's, that, that's so core to it all. That seemed like a, a real union between you and Jim Day. Yeah, I know. It yeah. was a wonder. It was a very fortuitous. Wonderful, wonderful performance. But in the case of the John Guerre play, uh, what's remarkable about that is something you also touched on before, which is that it could be played by, for a hundred years by all kinds of different actors because of John's having left the characters for you people to, to fulfill in, in, in the way that you want to do, as, as, as you say. Uh, there's almost nothing specific in, in this play. Uh, in that, in that yeah. play. In, 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 no, I mean, he doesn't. It, it, the scenes are rather very fractured. It's almost like sound bites or something. And I, 
as I said earlier, I was amazed that the audience went with this from the beginning because it's a very unusual kind of um, way of, uh, of writing a play. I mean, mm -hmm. it's an extremely unusually written play, the whole structure, the form of it. And, and I'm stunned that people are, you know, embrace it the way they do. But, it, but it's almost the ideal play that, can, that is as open as that to that many possible mm -hmm. kinds of, uh, both kinds of But there is a definite limitation right. within the rhythm of it because there's a certain momentum. You have to hit certain peaks of response uh, in audience to have to get them to the next stage. And Tobel said they laugh too much in the first act, they don't cry in the mm -hmm. second. Actually, in our play, we find the reverse is true. If they don't really go crazy in the middle and laugh, we don't get them to calm down and go with the mm -hmm. strangeness of the end. And um, it's really a three-act play in an hour and a half. It's and what happens in respect to the fact that it goes all the way through without a break? Is that yeah. very different from uh, the usual experience or not? I think so. That combined with the demands of the rhythm of the piece, the almost mm -hmm. musical demands. I mean, you get on that train and you do not get off, you know? Because it is a, thr it's a thrilling idea, which we've always been able to do in, uh, in other forms, of having a continuous action like that going right, right. through. And uh, the novelist Simonon said that a novel should be like a blow in the face. <laughs> and that's the way this play is. I definitely like a blow in the face. I think it's, uh, yeah. And when you, when you have the, the interruption of an act in the old days, three acts, when you right. have to come back twice and, and come up. Mm, but uh, to have a blow in the face is, the, is what everybody dreams of doing. Mm -hmm. We're about to open this to questions, and, and you might as well get on your mark, because I'm sure that there's going to be baffling, interesting, and I hope helpful questions for everybody. Would you please come along? Um, this is for Ms. Channing. Both you and Ms. Alexander said that you work slowly, and I was just wondering what pressures that causes on you from, like, the other actors, the director. <laughs> <laughs> One more little bit. Um, and as the character evolves and changes throughout the run of the show, like, how do they react to that, the director and the actors? And All right, I'll start, and then Jane can <laughs> do her. Um, I, the, the first part of the question, I did a play a few years ago called Women in Mind, in which the play actually existed in this woman's mind. And it was a lot, it was an Alan Akeburn piece. And um, anyway, I had that thing of having to be in, we had a standard amount of four weeks rehearsal, and it was a lot of material. And, and everyone had to talk to this central character. And so it was a very oppressive thing, I'm sure, to them, because I only was working slowly, but I was working in, in my usual conventional way, which I didn't want to really learn the words until after I knew what I was talking about, as we mentioned earlier, and what I was trying to say. And, and then I had to I had to stop feeling guilty because I would go I'd be riddled with guilt that I wasn't sort of word perfect the next day and that took so much energy out of me I had to stop that, so I just you just put one foot in front of the other and hope you know and luckily they were all very nice to me, and tolerated this and probably the, the worst of it was when I was feeling guilty because the last thing you need is some actor coming into rehearsal saying oh I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I don't know my lines, you know you waste a lot of energy that way you do what you can do. And it all came together at the end and turned out pretty well. But, um, you know, that is, a, it is a problem when you work uh, solely as I do. And it, but in the course of the run, I have, I'm really schizophrenic about this myself. I, I work very slowly at the beginning. And then when I lock in, I, I get, I pretty much stay within this tunnel. I find out the tunnel I'm in and I can go like that. But I, I, don't, I don't like going too far out once I'm in performance because of the whole thing of other actors and everything. I mean, I don't think I'm exactly, you know, mimicking myself. but. It's almost like a signature, you know. Okay. Anyway, but Jane, Jane hasn't answered this question. Oh, uh, well, oh. Uh, mine is very quick. <laughs> Nigel Hawthorne had been playing Shadowlands for about 11 months in England. And when I first came in, he said, oh, he's a charming Englishman. And he said, well, 
that's just lovely, dear, just lovely, and nothing. Well, as time went on, and I got more laughs and more tears from the audience, he said, Jane, darling, do you think maybe you could just do this or do that? <laughs> he was really put off a little bit, but then we had to sit down and talk about it, and my parameters, just like Socrates says, were confined, and then there wasn't too much shifting around. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Uh, my question is to you, Miss Alexander, but it could be to anyone on the panel. Um, in Shadowlands, you were portraying a historical character. How is your approach to the role different than if you're working on a fictional character? What is your responsibility to the actual person? Okay, I've played a lot of historical characters, not so much on stage, but uh, certainly a lot in film. When I play somebody like Eleanor Roosevelt, who the public has an image, they know who she is, you know, they know what she sounds like, I feel that I, I do have a responsibility to somehow try to find some way to assume certain characteristics. When I'm playing somebody like Joy Davidman, who in fact is entirely different looking than I, I was at all, I don't feel the same responsibility. The public doesn't know her. So in fact, I just went with what the playwright gave me. And he said he extrapolated a lot that wasn't in her life either. OK, uh, this, this question is addressed to the entire panel. Um, how is your job different with a new original script as opposed to doing something that's established? And if you had the choice, which one would you prefer to work on? Well, I um, uh, tend to, I, I've done very few original scripts lately. Um, but I tend to approach any new piece of work as if it was a new script and as if I'd never seen it before. And a lot of Shakespeare I haven't seen before. <laughs> so uh, it. Uh, I, I don't really um, make that kind of definition between them. I think it, it, um, so you, you bring a kind of freshness to it. With, a, with a, an entirely new script, like Miss Saigon is the newest script I've done for years, apart from film or TV scripts, um, you have a, fr a freedom to, uh, to, to have some kind of input into it so that things are changed and it grows around you and around the company. But I, I think we all approach it freshly each time, don't we? Yeah. Lads? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. I see a yeah. lot of head nodding. Yeah. I think with a new role, uh, you, you are the one who's going to establish certain parameters, and you're, they, they haven't been established before, and so you can go wherever you want with it, and there are no predefined, there, there, there are no predefinitions of what this character can be. No, so if you uh, look at Masha in Three Sisters, uh, you, you remember, first of all, the great performances that you've seen. And you have unconsciously some things to get beyond, uh, maybe some reading, some attitudes, some stuff that you had seen that you might want to put in uh, to your own performance that are derivative of someone else's. And you know you're going to have to go through that and in beyond it into something else. So that there are maybe some problems, certainly with a man doing Hamlet. I don't know. I mean, uh, with fear and trepidation, any man approaching Hamlet, I suppose. And maybe for a woman, it would be something like Medea. Um, or one of the great Ibsen heroines, you know, so that unconsciously, you, you've got to get through some unconscious barricades sometimes with the great established roles. Well, but I do believe you have to have finally approach them all the same way. Yeah. You are creating someone who has never been seen before. Well, I think that's very yeah. important. I think with the classics, which is done in England so, so much more frequently than done here, they do approach it each time with a fresh hydra and how, and, and they, I find that, that uh, the artists take smaller roles in order to be able to get another view of what they're doing within the cast. And Americans are now doing that too, I think, with the resident companies. 
and the small off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway. They're going with these companies, wonderful, talented people, in order to do something else and to stretch themselves just one bit more, which is pretty much what we've heard on the panel today, this stretching of yourself, this constant trying. I think when you, when, uh, as Jonathan Mercedes both said, that when you, whenever you approach a role, you approach it as if, obviously, it's never been done before. I think the difference is that you do have the freedom to create without parameters, I and mean, there are no parameters. When you started creating your Weeza, yeah. uh, you know, there, there's never been a Weeza before. It's the first one. I remember I was doing um, Three Sisters at the Taper, and at the same time, on television was a British production of Three Sisters, and some wonderful British actor was playing the part that I was playing at the Taper, and people actually compared us, which was so silly, you know. And, uh, which also put a lot of pressure on me. But, There's uh, another <laughs> element, though, to this question, which is when you do a contemporary new play, you deal with rewrites. And mm. that's something, you know, um, most of the plays I've done over the past few years have been, I don't know, English plays that have been done, mm. whatever. And last year I had the uh, interesting experience of doing a Neil Simon play called Jake's Women, in which there was a tremendous amount of rewriting. I mean, I mean, tremendous which never came into town. And when I did Six Degrees or right afterwards, there was a very minimal amount of rewriting. But in terms of creating a character within a production, you have to deal, when you're doing a new play, with the play that you end up with could be very, very different than the play you first read, which is a totally different um, problem than, than it just you know, dealing with interpretation of a, a text in a new way. Thank you. Do you want to ask me? Uh, this is to Mercedes' rule. Can you speak up? This is to Mercedes' rule, uh, but a few people, I think, were talking about it. Pertaining to the freedom you come to discover in the discipline of the dramatic situation and the characters or even the beat of the words um, and interaction between players, um, does your experience as an actor um, carry over into your personal life or do they rhyme in any way or do they, is it... Um, Have I started speaking in couplets? <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not that so much as... Um, <laughs> When you return to the discipline of the of the dramatic situation and uh, talking about that as being kind of a releasing thing, um, does it in any way uh, carry over into uh, personal life or your experience outside of the theater? Well, I'll tell you, in this, I don't know if this is what you're talking about, but um, I, I have discovered that in order to do eight shows a week of a fairly demanding role, that a, a new discipline has to enter your life. Um, I was just talking about this with Topol between the, um, when we were taking our break. Um, you have to take care of your voice. You have to get sleep. Uh, if, if you have um, a, a love of wine, you have to curb it. You know? <laughs> if you smoke, you have to stop. Uh, because you just can't do it. You, the, the, the mechanism, the voice, the energy, even the very desire to go out and improvise it anew every night is affected by rest, by exercise, by nutrition. So, yeah, I mean, I, this, if, I, if I were 21 and listening to myself saying this, I'd be going, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's really, the, it's really the fire in the belly that counts, right? The fire in the belly is totally dependent on on, on how you take care of the temple that surrounds it. And uh, I, I just keep finding that out more. We come more. back to that word discipline again. Yeah. Come. Okay, this, this question is, is for Jonathan Price. Um, since you've been playing the same part for two years, how has your performance changed and grown? Um, 
Well, I haven't played it consistently for two years. I mean, we started rehearsals in June 89, and I played it for a year in London, and then I had seven seven-month break uh, before starting rehearsals here. Um, and it's like Topo was saying, um, I've, it's, I've never played a role, it, it feels like a second chance to do, and I've never done that with another role, to come back to something after a break. Um, and I, I, I don't, it's, it's changed very little, really. It's changed in nuance, and I'm working with new actors, apart from Leia Salonga. Um, and I, I've, you have new sensibilities to a, a, an entirely new audience, an American audience, who are that much more aware of uh, what the Vietnam War meant to them and to their country at the time. Uh, because in London, it's very mu a much more a mixed audience. Um, and it's, uh, there's a greater political awareness here and a political turmoil, and it, it's very exciting to be... I don't, don't think I could have gone on for two years playing it continuously in London, but uh, it's a, a whole new set of circumstances here. Why not? And why not in London? Um, I'd have been bored out of my head, I think. Um, it's, I cannot, uh, and a, lo a lot of us, get, you just can't, without a break, you can't keep, I've never done it before. I mean, it, I've done straight, play, the longest I'd done a straight play for was uh, Uncle Vanya, which I did for six months, and after three months, we were taking it off on the back of the stage, but it's, uh, it, it's very draining to keep uh, performing. And I like new challenges, and I think, Audiences like to see new things and be surprised. This is a personal feeling of yours, though, but suppose that you, you did not have that particular feeling of, of, of wanting to do something different. In having a long run, such as Topo said, would you be bored with it as a role, or, or would you be bored with the audience saying, oh my goodness, No, I, I, I think time? I'd be bored with it. Um, it's almost too strong a word. I think it would be eventually have a, a negative <laughs> effect on, on me and the, and the performance. I just need change. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been very lucky in the past 10 years of my work that the change is involved um, going between theatre and film, going back mm -hmm. from one to the other, and that they okay. stimulate each other. It's looking for the stimulus all the time. Would anyone else like to pick up on that and how you feel about long runs? Yes, well, Jessica. I was just thinking about that. I, I did. I did Annie for two years, and um, fortunately, I got to grow up to a different uh, from an orphan to Annie. But I, I remember the night before I started playing Annie, I was lying in bed and I thought, "Well, this is fantastic. You know, I could swallow poison and die now because I'm going to play Annie, and you know that's it." <laughs> and then I then this really weird thought occurred to me: was, "Oh my God! But I have to do it for a year, and how am I going to do that?" And and I'm somebody who has. Um, the concentration of a child, really. I just, I get, you know, I need constant change and snooze stimuli and stuff. And the thing that that changed that was the audience being different every night and actors changing and going on vacation and, and working with new people and things. But with this play, with this, with Substance of Fire, I thought, you know, this is so hard and, and I'll only be able to do this for a short time. And the play has been extended for a lot longer than we had anticipated. And I love this, the, the idea of length. I love it because I'm really discovering about discovering, you know? And it's, it's thrilling. It's unbelievable. And I feel really fortunate as opposed to like I'm in prison, you know? It's, it's different and growth and what that means. Yeah, it means a lot. Topo. Um, 
I find it uh, that uh, when we talk about long runs, I don't see really the difference apart from, you know, wanting stimulants as, as uh, I mean, we want to go from one thing to another. Uh, uh, but I think that the profession of an actor is, uh, is the challenge to come on stage every night and to make sure that the people out there believe you, that what you hear now from your colleague on stage, you hear for the first time, what you answer is you're answering for the first time, your reaction is for the first time. And I do admit that longer the show runs, that challenge is uh, greater. Uh, and it takes more of an effort to make the audience believe, but I really find it a challenge. Uh, because after all, we, we know that when we come for the, for the previews, it's already after two months of rehearsals. So we've heard our colleagues and we answer them. And if we run for 40 performances, or if we run for 60 or for 400, there we have to do the same thing. I mean, we have to make these people believe that what we do, we do for the first time. Otherwise, we are boring. Uh, this is, uh, this is the most important uh, uh, component of the acting profession. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I find it really, I mean, I've, as I, I mean, you all know that I've been doing it for, for, for probably altogether 1,200 or 1,300 performances. Mm. And uh, I, I know that when I don't do it, when I try to switch on the automatic pilot, I am caught immediately. I mean, I know <coughs> that it, it didn't work. I mean, when I sing If I Were a Rich Man, and I don't really mean every word of it, the applause at the end is like that. And when I do mean, it works. And uh, I find it quite... Uh, hard work i mean no doubt about it it's hard work but uh you have to do it this is our profession a very good actress and teacher that was on the panel said that uh, the long you you've taken as an actor you've almost taken an oath to be responsible to your audience and it's important to be responsible to them and it, it's uh, suppose you felt, oh my God, you're getting an appendectomy, and you look up at, at the physician, and, he said, and he's saying, oh, this is the hundredth appendectomy that I did today. How would you feel about that? <laughs> Think about that for a bit. We had a lot of young people at that particular panel, and it really, they said, yes, I hadn't thought about that. But it is that responsibility to an audience that must come through at each time. Isabel, with your yes. permission, can, Please. sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, uh, can I just, I mean, I, I love the question about uh, whether we like uh, uh, new parts or, uh, or uh, old plays, uh, uh, classical plays. I think that um, for, for years, I mean, I started, as I mentioned, uh, in a satirical theater, and uh, obviously we worked uh, uh, political satirical theater, uh, um, and uh, we were writing the material as we were uh, performing and it it was very exciting but uh, once I went into the what we call the legitimate theater the straight theater uh, 
I uh, found after one, two, three plays that uh, whether I saw Othello, and I did have the privilege of seeing Othello with the, with the Lord, uh, uh, and I saw it probably nine times, and uh, I saw other plays, of course, and then when we came to do it, I realized that each one of us, every actor, has his own prism. And our prism is made of, obviously, our body, our voice, our look, uh, our education, our knowledge, our everything that we acquired uh, in our life it makes our prism. And whatever we deliver, we deliver through our own prism. And it's never the same as the other actor or the previous actor did or will do, uh, or another actor will do after you. So uh, I find that whether it's a new play or, uh, or, or a play that has been performed before, whether I saw it or I never heard of it, I know, I hope I know, that uh, I'm doing my own thing and I have no embarrassment whatsoever in uh, doing a play that oh, was performed before. Thank you. Jane, you wanted to say something before. Yes, I think so. Um, uh, just, I, I'm sorry that I'm going to have to leave because I have to no. dub this film and the studio's waiting. But uh, anyway, um, what I wanted to say was I think it's all dependent upon the role, Long Runs. Uh, uh, when I did Great White Hope, I was playing a really depressed woman who kills herself at the end. It was totally excruciating that whole year. But Joy Davidman, who also dies in Shadowlands, was such an upbeat, joyous character that I think I could have gone on easily for a year, a year and a half. And again, if you have a small role, you get like Uchi. And, but if you have a wonderful, joyous Tevye, I mean, I think Tevye would be a joy to do forever, would it? I'm sorry I have to do this to you. But you're in, I can tell you, <laughs> all of us, you're in. And uh, I have to close this, and, and if you see the seminars, you find me saying this over and over again. Forgive me for interrupting you. You're all so talented, and you're all so giving of your time and talents to us. And I am so grateful to you for it. But I have to say that uh, I'm Isabel Stevenson, and uh, this the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, and this seminar has been on the performance. I don't know when we've had a more articulate or a more interesting group of panelists that have been on this program. And although we are known for the Tony Awards, which are broadcast on CBS every summer, this is not the whole of the theater. We've been talking about Broadway and what it is to work on Broadway. And the wing is constantly trying to develop audiences for Broadway. And our newest program is on introduction to Broadway, and we hope that we do just that, where young people are coming to Broadway to see shows, and this is made possible by the goodwill and the generosity of Broadway producers, producers of both Cats and Grand Hotel. And now we have to bring this to a close, and thank you again. Thank you for being here, and thank you especially for being here.